If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning. We are continuing on in a series we started five or six months ago in the greatest letter ever written, is what it's been called, uh, Paul's epistle to the church in Rome. And we are looking this morning at Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. We're going to take the rest of this first section of chapter 8 and... Before we do read Romans 8, 5 through 11, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on the preaching and receiving of it this morning. Father in heaven, we, as a congregation of your people, a gathering of your saints, lift up our voices and we cry out to you that you would give us um, bread from heaven, that you would give us grace upon grace this morning in the Lord Jesus, that you would make us to see him and hear him that we might be able to feed on him by faith, that, Father, you would make us to know more of the sweet influence of your Holy Spirit this morning. We pray that you would remind those of us who have been redeemed of who we are and of what has happened to us. We pray for those who do not know you, that today might be the day of salvation, that, Father, you would even today be delivering those in the flesh into the sphere and the reality of the blessed Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be present in our midst, that you would minister to us as the great worship leader of your people. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Romans 8, beginning in verse 5, and actually let me start back in verse 1 for us for the sake of context. Paul has shifted now into um, talking about the agency of the Holy Spirit in the work of sanctification, and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his massive commentary on the book of Romans, tells the story of William Wilberforce. I know some of you have heard this in the past. William Wilberforce was one of the great parliamentarians in England. Um, and he was one that led in the days of abolition, led the abolition of slavery in England. He was a dear friend of John Newton's. And as the story goes, William Wilberforce had a very famous political friend named William Pitt the Younger. 
And William Pitt the Younger and Wilberforce were two of the most revered politicians in all of England in the 18th century, which, if you know anything about history, is to mean that you were revered in the highest regard among humanity. And as the story that Lloyd-Jones tells goes, Wilberforce loved to go and hear Richard Cecil, really amazing gospel preacher, preach, and he wanted William Pitt the Younger to come and hear his friend preach. And so after many times of begging William Pitt the Younger to come and hear Richard Cecil preach, Pitt finally agreed, and Wilberforce was ecstatic. He thought, surely, surely, when William Pitt hears the powerful gospel preaching of Richard Cecil, he will come to repentance and he will come to embrace Jesus Christ. And uh, Wilberforce reflected as he told this story that he was sitting there listening and it was one of Cecil's greatest sermons and the gospel was being proclaimed and Jesus Christ was being held out and Wilberforce couldn't wait to ask Pitt what he thought about the sermon. And no sooner had the sermon ended that Wilberforce turned to Pitt and he said, what did you think? And Pitt said, I haven't the slightest clue what that man was talking about the whole time. Now what that story reflects is that you can have two people whose lives are very much the same, two politicians in this case who are doing their job very effectively, who are benefiting humanity, who are, who are friends, who are kind people, who are loving and caring people, and yet they can be two very different people living in two very different worlds. One was living in the spirit, and one was living in the flesh. And the Apostle Paul is going to set out for us this morning as he is unpacking the truth of justification by faith in Christ and sanctification in Christ and everything that the believer has in Christ, Paul is now going to give a caveat. He's going to say, after making this glorious declaration, notice verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. If you're in Jesus, no judgment. If you're in Jesus, there's no judgment for you. You've passed from death to life. You have already been judged at the cross. We've heard that. You are justified in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. You have the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Paul has made that, that glorious statement to believers. Even though you have this indwelling war going on, this sin battle going on, there is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. But Paul, the good pastor that he was, and now turns and gives this caveat because, and one of the greatest dangers in ministry is for the minister to comfort people who are unregenerate and to steal assurance from those that are regenerate. It's the most challenging thing for a minister. I know often I don't talk to you about difficulties. It's very difficult for a pastor to talk about difficulties as being a pastor. It sounds very selfish to even talk about it. But let me say this this morning. The most difficult task for a minister of the gospel is to preach in such a way that he doesn't give assurance to hypocrites and steal assurance from sincere believers. And Paul is zealous for this very thing. Notice, Paul doesn't want to comfort. Paul does not want to say peace, peace, where there is no peace. He doesn't want in that mixed multitude in that church in Rome for those who are not in Christ, who are just going through the motions, who are playing a part, but they're living in the unregenerate state. They're united to Adam. He doesn't want them to hear there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ as being said to them in an unqualified sense. Um, 
Another famous minister said, I believe it was J.C. Ryle, the hardest thing to do and the hardest thing in the world is to get a hypocrite to come off of their hypocrisy when they sit under the preaching of the word week in and week out. It's the hardest thing in the world to get a hypocrite to come off of their hypocrisy when they sit under the word week in and week out. And so Paul is going to set out these caveats. Notice that in verses 5 through 11, he's really going to give us these parallels first. And I'm stealing this outline from a man named Ian Hamilton. So you know that in case anybody listens to his sermon and my sermon. Uh, The first point he tells us about is he tells us about two spheres of existence. Notice there in verse 5, Paul is going to say those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. So two spheres of existence. Then he's going to tell us, secondly, that there are two ways of thinking, that everyone that lives in those two spheres thinks one of two ways. One thinks according to the flesh. The other thinks according to the spirit. And finally, he's going to tell us that there are then two states of being, two spheres of existence, two ways of thinking, two states of being. Well, notice there, Paul has just told us in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, keep in mind when you read anything in the Bible that you always want to read it in light of what went before in the book that you're reading. The worst thing in the world to do is to just take some scripture off the surface of the pages of the Bible and just look at it in an isolated form and say, well, this must be saying this because it says this And there's no context to anything that goes before it. Paul has already told us, and I think Paul has Romans 5, 12 through 21 in mind here, where he told us you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Paul is essentially picking back up what he said in Romans 5, 12 through 21. And he is now saying to these people, he's saying, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. How do you know if you're in Christ? Well, first, you need to know that there are two spheres of existence that all men and women live in. There are only two. I love, I love the way Sinclair Ferguson said, you either belong to the nation of Adam or you belong in the kingdom of Christ. You either belong in the nation of Adam or you belong in the kingdom of Christ. And everybody in this room belongs in one of those two spheres. Everybody in this room is either unregenerate or regenerate. You are either in the flesh or in the spirit. Paul is actually not saying, and this is the danger with a passage like this, there are many people who would come to a text like this and they would say, Paul is saying, start living in the spirit. Start doing better. Start trying harder. Stop doing these things. And, and especially people are tempted to come to this and, and they're tempted to say, well, clearly Paul's talking about sexual immorality. That's the big thing. That's what we mean when he talks about living in the flesh. I'm going to argue this morning that while all forms of sexual immorality are absolutely included in what it means to live in the flesh. That is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about life in a fallen world as an unregenerate person going through your day, living for self, living thoughtlessly to the kingdom of God and the realities of eternity, not thinking about Jesus Christ, not seeking to please God. Notice this. This is very interesting. Notice this. Notice verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's, it's an 
It's an absolute impossibility. It's an ontological impossibility. It is in your being, if you are in Adam and you're not in Christ, you cannot please God. Here's the irony, isn't it? We were created to please God. God didn't create you so that you would get pleasure. First and foremost, God didn't create us so that we would have lives of pleasure. God created us so that we would please him, so that we would bring him glory, so that we would make his name great in the earth, that men would know that he is the Lord and that we are men, that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, that he is the self-existent one. He is the one who said to Moses, I am that I am. I was that I was. I will be what I will be. I am the unchangeable God who is full of infinite power and glory. I am the most high over all the earth. The Lord reigns, says the psalmist. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength so that the earth is established and cannot be moved. And that God has created men and women to please him. And the problem is in Adam, we seek to please ourselves. And so Paul is saying that there is one sphere of existence and it is tagged according to the flesh. Notice there in verse five, those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, and then here's the second sphere. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, one of the most wonderful ways that the New Testament speaks of conversion, and I've prayed it this morning a couple times, is that God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the power of Satan into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's the best way to describe if you're, if you're in Christ this morning, if you live according to the Spirit, if you are, if you are um, regenerate, if you've been born of God's Spirit, you have been transferred from the power and the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me say a couple things. When Paul says that there are those that live according to the Spirit, And there are those that live according to the flesh. He is not saying that those who live according to the flesh are just really sexually perverse, debased people in the gutter. And that people who live in the spirit functionally have everything together. That's not what he's saying. In fact, I would argue that Paul has in mind the totality of the life of an unbeliever so that like William Pitt, you could be very successful in business, in politics, in medicine, in the military, in law, in ministry. You could be very successful in any sphere of life. You could provide well for your spouse. You could be faithful to your spouse. You could provide for your children the best education you could provide them. You could be very disciplined and regimented in how you eat and how you work out. And you could be living life in the flesh, fallen in Adam, pleasing yourself. I had a, um, one of many mentors explaining to me as a younger student how subtle this really can be. And he, and he told the story, he said, if there was a woman um, who had a little girl and she was a single mother and, and she, had been, um, she had been abused and she had been abandoned and she was left with this little girl and she did everything for that little girl. 
She fed her and clothed her, provided her with the best education, worked three jobs for her, <clears throat> made sure that everything was taken care of so that this little girl could go on and be successful in life, but she never told her about Jesus Christ and never cared about her spiritual needs. She has raised her to be a rebel against the king of heaven. I want that to sink in this morning. I, I actually, I believe this. I believe that the Christian church largely doesn't get that. And I don't know why that's so hard to get. You can have two politicians, William Wilberforce and William Pitt the Younger, doing the same thing for the same causes, and yet one's motivation is to bring glory to Jesus and one is to please himself and establish his own kingdom. One is living according to the flesh. One is living according to the spirit. And so that means if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, that means though you, you grapple with the weight of your sin, and you recognize the battle with sin, you cry out with Paul, as he did at the end of Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I want to read to you, and I I question whether I would read this, because it's somewhat of a long quote, but I, I really think this captures better than anything what Paul is saying here about these two spheres. Listen to this. Paul says, This is the thing, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm sorry. This is the thing that establishes that we are Christians. Everything else falls into position because this now is the thing that matters centrally. Everything else falls into position because what Christ has done is the thing that matters centrally. And if it means I have to give up everything else in order that this may be right, I am prepared to do it. This is the thing that establishes that we are Christians. Perish every fond ambition, all I've thought and hoped and known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Have you gotten that concern? Can you say that what matters to you above everything else is your soul? I want to press this in this morning. Lloyd-Jones says, can you say that your soul matters more to you than your position, your profession, your money, your husband, your wife, your children, your family, your prospects, and everything else. Does it come first? Our Lord Jesus said, he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, hold on. Lloyd-Jones goes on a little more. Because the sole interest is the supreme interest The Christian is aware of and is concerned about his sinfulness. He knows what it is to be in trouble about his soul. He is aware of his weakness. He spends much of his time thinking about these things. Of course, when he's in the old state, in a mechanical sense, he may get on his knees by the side of his bed at night to say his prayers, but he rarely, if ever, stops to consider his soul truly and his relationship to God and his eternal destiny. I want to say this morning, what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 5 through 11, is every bit as weighty as what Lloyd-Jones just said. He is saying that everyone is in the flesh or in the spirit. What, what, What sphere of existence are you living in? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Secondly, how do we know? How do we know these things? Well, Paul goes on to tell us that there are two ways of thinking. Notice there in verse five. Notice the second part of verse five. He says, those who live... According to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You know, I've had a number of people say to me, 
Well, you're Presbyterian. You guys, you're, you're the intellectual ones. Let me say this this morning. Christianity is a religion of the mind. Paul will actually say here, he'll use the word mind intentionally. He will actually say, those who live according to the flesh, and, and I want to say this this morning. Everybody uses their mind. Everybody serves either the flesh or the spirit with their minds. I had a friend tell me, who he was in ministry, and he knew me when I was a punk at like 19, and he was like, I've never met anybody that had so many secular song lyrics memorized as you. I don't even remember them. I try to remember those songs today. I can't. And I, sometimes I listen to those songs, and I'm like, wow, that was, that was bad. Um, I was using my mind to serve the flesh. I could tell you all about bands. I could tell you all about drugs. I could tell you all about all kinds of things. I used my mind, but I didn't use my mind for the Lord. And notice that Paul says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That means if, if you are in Adam, if you're unregenerate, that means unless you hear somebody preach to you about Jesus, you're probably not thinking about these things through the week. Let me, let me give you a litmus test this morning. First of all, I don't want to steal assurance from any true believer in this room, but let me say this. If you are not in Christ, if you are in the flesh... You have to deal, as Lloyd-Jones says, very honestly with your soul, and you have to say, what do I think about through the week? What are my pervasive thoughts? Am I just thinking about how to make more money and secure my next thing and not do this and do this and do this and not do this and this and this and this and then protect my family and do this and make sure that this is provided for and do this and this? That's in the flesh. That's in the flesh. If, if what consumes your thinking is self-interest that is setting your mind on the things of the flesh. And that can be for very good things. You know, every Hollywood actor tries to atone for their sin by giving money away to charities. That's in the flesh. That's not for Jesus Christ. You know that, right? If I'm the only person that tells you that, the next time you see one of the commercials with Matt Damon, you will remember that. That is in the flesh. Just because people do things that benefit society is not living life in the spirit. That can be very self-motivated. So we have to ask the question, what motivates me? My conversations, my thoughts, my actions, how I use my time, the totality of my life. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. In contrast, Paul says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, let me say this this morning. I think we could fall into a functional perfectionism that we want to guard against. Paul is not saying you can be assured that you're a Christian if you are always thinking about Jesus. You're walking down the road and you're like, Jesus. Jesus, and you're just thinking about Jesus 24-7, and you're at work, and you're supposed to be working, and you get your Bible out, and somebody's like, dude, what are you doing? And you're like, I'm setting my mind on the things of the Spirit, and it's like, you're getting paid to work. Get to work. That's not what setting your mind on the things of the Spirit is. What it means is thinking about your relationship with the Lord on a daily basis, not looking at others on a horizontal level and judging everything horizontally, but judging things vertically and seeing how God's word is impacting everything in your life, including when you fall and when you sin. Because let me give you an example. Let's say you have a horrible week. 
You fall into sin repeatedly that you didn't want to do. You yell at your spouse. You lost. You get angry. You, you are coveting. You're comparing yourself with other people and you're jealous, whatever it is. And you're falling into these things. And a spiritually minded person who sets their mind on the things of the spirit will say, God has said, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me my sin. And that if I sin, I have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I will go. I will confess my sin. I will believe the gospel. I will know that I'm forgiven. That's what a spiritually minded person looks like. It's not saying that you never sin. It's not saying that you are enduring every single temptation coming your way. It will say that your heart's desire will be to overcome temptation and that you will be praying and calling on the Lord to strengthen you and to lead you in paths of righteousness and to cause you to do your business in an upright way, to bless others for the name of Jesus, for your witness in the community. It will, call, it will cause you to think about everything. You know, one of the, one of the things that happens, and, and some of you will obviously have known this if you were converted as an adult, when... When you're converted, you see the world through new eyes. That's the best description. You see the world through new eyes. I remember driving down the road in Greenville, South Carolina, a couple months after I was converted, and, and trees. And I, I thought, 24 years of my life, trees were just these materialistic objects around me, and now I see that Jesus Christ created all the trees, saw the world through new eyes. I thought about the fact that he was upholding all things by the word of his power, that he gave me life and breath in all things. Everything was different. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that if you're in the flesh, you sort of selfishly go through life, dealing with all your business. If you're in the spirit, You are setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Let me say this this morning, too. Um, If you're a believer and and you struggle with assurance and you struggle with, well, I see so much corruption in my life. How could I be a Christian? How could I do these things? Because Satan loves to come and and accuse and tempt. He's the accuser of the brethren. You sin, and then he comes and he's like, how could you do this? Um, Run to the Scriptures. Part Part of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit is going to the scriptures. Jesus said, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. Spiritual mindedness is fostered and developed as we, we spend time sitting at the feet of Jesus, reading the word, calling on him, crying out to him, um, praying throughout the day. Puritans used to call them dagger prayers. All through the day, throwing up little prayers. Spiritual mindedness is fostered by those things. Let me say, thirdly and finally, there are two states of being that are spoken of here. Notice what Paul does in 6 through 8. He says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then notice what he says. He says, to set your mind on the spirit, verse 6, is life and peace. Now, there are are two states of being here. He's not saying, if you set your mind on the flesh, you're going to die and perish eternally. That's true. Paul says that in chapters 1 and 2. That's everywhere taught in scripture. What Paul is saying is that as we live in one of these two states, 
spheres of existence. And as our minds show what we're thinking about, the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit, we are actually realizing and living in two states of being, death and life. So right now in this room, there are spiritually dead people and spiritually alive people. That's my assumption. I think that would be Paul's assumption. That's He's writing to a mixed multitude. He says, there are people that are dead and there are people that are alive. There are people who are spiritually corpses who hate God or at enmity with God, hate hearing his word, hate being told about his rule and his righteousness and his goodness and his mercy, hate hearing about his love in Christ, really in their hearts, hate being told that there is someone who is God and they are not. I read a a great illustration of this, I thought, um, where an old, uh, old minister had written a sermon on this text, and he said, I think it was Thomas Chalmers, he said, um, God is to the man living in the flesh who's dead in sins, like a man who shows up at his house unexpected when he's in the middle of something and throws him off, and that man gets really angry because this person showed up and got him sidetracked. So God, God is everywhere. God is orchestrating everything. But God shows up in people's lives, especially under preaching. And he says, I am God, you are not. He says, you are fallen and rebellious, and yet I will redeem you. And he is like a man interrupting somebody in their fleshly business. And they hate it. They hate that God is saying, turn, turn. Turn from your ways and trust me. Turn from your selfishness and trust me. Stop living for the flesh. Stop living for yourself and self-interest in the world and advancement and power and money. Stop doing that. Eat, live, have eternal life in my son. And they hate hearing that. And yet God continues to do that until finally they come to a point where they see that God is the most gracious and merciful being in the universe. And when their heart is melted because they see that he gave his own son for hell-deserving rebels like us. And how, how more remarkable could it be than that the Bible says when we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, when we were in according to the flesh, when we were in Adam, when we hated God, God gave his infinitely perfect and beautiful son to take all of our rebellion on himself. And when you see that and your eyes are open, your heart is melted, you're drawn to him, you run to him, you realize you have no righteousness, you go to him and he says, I have received you, I have forgiven you, I have cleansed you, you are mine, I love you with an everlasting love. I have lavished all my grace and mercy on you and all of a sudden you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of God's love and you see everything through new eyes. I want to ask you this morning, as we read these verses here, and I'm going to pick up on verses 9 through 11 next week, as we look at verses 4 through 8 and, and you do an inventory check of your soul, I want to ask you a couple things. First, is, is your soul's interest the supreme interest of your life? That's the way Lloyd-Jones put it. Is your soul's interest... Now, Jesus actually said... What will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
the most valuable thing you have is not your investments, is not your financial investments. The most valuable thing you have is an eternal soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What if a man gained the whole world and lost his own soul? If a man gained all the power and all the influence and all the wealth and all the prestige and all the pleasures and all the freedoms and resources and he lost his own soul. Jesus Christ is saying this morning, is your soul the supreme interest of your life? Secondly, I want to encourage you that if you, by the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit today, would say, you know what, it's not. And you were honest and you said... I live according to the flesh. I think about the world all the time. I don't think about the things of the Lord. I don't really grieve over. I can't wait to get out of here and stop listening to Nick if, and listening to God's word. If, that's, if, that's, if you're honest, the Holy Spirit would awaken you this morning. What you, what you would do is you would flee to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And you would turn to him and you would say, I have been living for self. You know, conversion is a supernatural work of God. You can't do it. You can't bring yourself out of the flesh into the spirit. That's an impossibility. There's, Paul's not telling you to do anything in this passage. Isn't that remarkable? He's not telling you to do anything. He's not, there's no way you can bring yourself from the flesh to the spirit But what Paul would say is God has done what the law could not do in sending his son to condemn your sin in the flesh. And so realize what God has done in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. If you're honest with yourself and you say, you know what, I don't think I'm converted, then don't make another excuse. I actually think that you know, when we, when we think about the flesh here, and we tend to chalk that up to really wicked, externally wicked people, Jesus kind of shatters that paradigm when he says the prostitutes and thieves go to heaven before really decent, well-dressed, well-off people like us who are not in him. So the Pharisees had it together. One of my best friends said to me once, um, most men in, in Christian churches in America would love for their daughters to marry a Pharisee because they were successful, they were financially responsible, and they were religious. And Jesus said that prostitutes went to heaven before them because they wouldn't turn from their own righteousness and trust him. So living according to the flesh can be nice, decent, external Phariseeism, or it can be external rebellion. It can be either. Regardless, We turn to Christ, and we see what God has done for us. If you are in the Spirit, I'm going to say this last word this morning. If you are in Christ, and many of you are, um, I would encourage you to be feeding your soul with the Scriptures more. The best way to set your mind on the things of the Spirit is to be in the Word of God often. Now, when when I am at my worst... And you would have to say, Nick is definitely unconverted. You could see these moments when I am at my worst. What I need the most is to go run to the foot of the cross and to the feet of Jesus and listen to his word. And it is healing for the soul. It is restoration for the soul. 
It is, it is life. It is God is working in us by his word and spirit life. If you struggle with assurance and you think, how could I be a Christian when I do all these things? I would say, you know, be honest with yourself. Do you see fruit? Do you see good fruit on the tree? Jesus doesn't say, if a tree bears 100 pieces of fruit, you know that it's a good tree. He says, a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. So is there one piece of good fruit on the tree that is you? Is there even one piece of good fruit? If there is good fruit, and you can say, you know what? I do love Christ. I do need a Savior. I do need more of the Holy Spirit. I hate my sin. I want to overcome sin. I'm going to the throne of grace about this. That's fruit on the tree. That's fruit. That's good fruit. Do you love the saints? That's good fruit. Do you love reading the scriptures? That's good fruit. Do you love worshiping? That's good fruit. Do you love using your homes and your money to bless others for Jesus? That's good fruit. And down the line, there's good fruit in the lives of all God's people. And so be assured that if you are in the spirit and living according to the spirit, and you are setting your mind on the spirit that you're in Christ Jesus And it is life and peace for you. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we tremble at words that we know are sobering and are searching. We are grateful, Father, that it's not up to us to change ourselves. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. We thank you, Father, that you sent your son to condemn sin in the flesh and that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We pray, Father, that you would make every man, woman, and child in this room to know whether they are in the flesh or in the spirit. We pray, our God, that you would make us a spiritually minded people, that you would increase our knowledge of you, Father, and of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us the life and peace that is ours even now in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would know a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit this morning, even as we come to the table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.